Who is Jesus Christ and how does he relate to Eden Baptist Church? Who is Jesus and what is his function in this body? Our life together as a church can rise no higher than our vision of the person and the work of our Savior and Lord. We bring to close today a series of sermons on church membership, and we've considered some of the minutiae of this topic in recent weeks. But what I'd like us to do today as we bring this series to a close is to pan back and to take in the big picture of who Jesus is and how He relates to His church. As a fitting conclusion, I'd like us to soak in the high Christology of Colossians chapter 1. If you'll make your way there into verse 15. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. And we'd like to look at this passage with one eye focused on application to the practice of church membership. As we stand at the portal of this amazing text, we stand in the doorway for just a moment. Let me ask you a question to lead us in. One of my professors often asks this question, and I think it's important how we answer it. Could Buddhism exist apart from Gautama Buddha? Gautama Buddha, widely held as the greatest Buddha of all time. Could it exist without him? Remove him from human history. And you know what? The fundamental tenets of Buddhism would still be followed by Buddhists worldwide. What about Islam? Could Islam exist without the prophet Muhammad? Islam teaches that Muhammad is the greatest prophet, that he is the last in this long line of great prophets and has received the highest revelation as recorded in the Quran. But if really brought to this question, any Muslim would agree that Allah could have chosen some other prophet. It's not something inherent in Muhammad that had to be chosen for this path of revelation. Any prophet could have been chosen. Allah is entirely free to choose any such prophet to receive his revelations. But what about Christianity? Could the church exist apart from Jesus Christ? Obviously, there's a difference with Islam. It doesn't follow its name with Muhammad, and Christianity does. So we'd have to come up with a new name. But could Christianity exist apart from Jesus Christ? There seem to be some churches that are Christian churches in name that are doing quite fine without Him. And I think remove Jesus from there, and it would sort of mess up Easter and Christmas. But outside of that, nothing would really change they go about their community actions and their way of working together and their, their life together and nothing would really be lost. But what do we say? What does Scripture teach? Could the church exist apart from Jesus Christ? The answer hinges on who Jesus really is and how the risen Christ relates to our church today. Now, Buddha has an influence on Buddhist temples. Muhammad has an influence on mosques. Undoubtedly, there's an influence there. But what is the influence upon Jesus Christ, the founder of our faith, upon the church 
Well, let's look at this passage as we consider these questions and as we bring to close our consideration on church membership. Let's learn first of all and be reminded that Jesus is sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. Verse 15 reads, He, that is the Son of verse 13, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible spirit and He is everywhere present. Jesus is the visible, localized manifestation of God. We are made in the image of God, or perhaps as the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God. As He said to Philip, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. The point is not that Jesus is a copy of God, or that Jesus is a picture of God. The point is that Jesus is the objectification of God, the embodiment of God. One author puts it this way, the projection of God on the canvas of our humanity. No picture can grasp it, but that's a pretty good try. The projection of God on the canvas of our humanity. He is God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is, we see secondly, the firstborn of all creation. Now, in our culture, when we think of firstborn, we always think of it in temporal terms. The firstborn child in a family is the first one born. But in the ancient world, firstborn was almost universally to occupy a position of prominence. So much so that sometimes firstborn had only this meaning. In one Jewish source, God Himself is called the firstborn. Or think of this word to King David in Psalm 89 and verse 27. God speaking to David says, I will make him the firstborn. Is that the first to ever be born? Is that the first king to ever be born? Notice the next phrase. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So they're firstborn taken not in a sense of one's birth order, but in the sense of one's prominence. And so is the idea here. Jesus is supreme over all creation. Now, why is that the case? Why is He supreme over all creation as the image of God or in uh, one who is created, uh, who is the image of God? Why is He over all creation? Verse 16, you see the link. Therefore, by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. These thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities may well be a gradation of angelic beings, whether fallen or not. Perhaps to some degree they reflect the authorities on this earth as well. But what is significant here to us is that it is all by Him that these things are created. Or the word could be translated as you see your margin in Him. And I think as we study that word and how it's used in the New Testament, that's probably the better idea And it spells out for us a really beautiful idea that Jesus is the sphere of creation. That is, He is the one in whom all things are created. He is, in a sense, the creative circle outside of which nothing exists. The world is created through Him, secondly. That is, He is the agent. He was the master builder. He was the one who brought it into being. If we had time, we could stop here and wonder as we think of the immensity of space, of the intricacies of the physical world around us as we see smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. 
And as we look out into space and see more and more immensity there, He is the agent who brought it all into being. He fashioned it by the word of His power. And it's all for Him, thirdly. That is, He is the ultimate goal and the focus of creation. So Jesus is the encompassing circle of creation. He is its master craftsman, and He is the consummate goal to which all creation finds its final resolution. This is Christ. Verse 17 goes on as it speaks of His glory, of His preeminence. He is before all things. That is, I think, He existed prior to creation. Certainly, He is before all things in prominence, but that, has already, that point has already been made. So, likely here, He exists prior to creation. And in Him, all things hold together. Focus on that phrase. Jesus exercises the cohesive power that holds the universe together. He brings it into being, and now He sustains it. Every bit of it. Forever. Could Christianity exist without Jesus? Let's just back the question up and say the universe could not exist without Jesus. If it were possible, and it's not, for Him to go away, all would fly apart into disorder and destruction. Nothing exists apart from Christ. We have to also stop here and wonder as we consider this majesty, also the mystery of this. This wonder, this majesty, this One who holds the universe together. Very recently, in the lifetime of some of these readers, was hanging on a cross and dying as a common criminal outside of Jerusalem. Now we have to say that there's one of two options then. Paul is off his rocker. He is insane to speak of such, of such a man in these terms, or Jesus is the God that Paul proclaims. Who is He? As we ask that question, Jesus is sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. He holds it all together. This is who He is. Secondly, Jesus is sovereign Lord and Savior of the church. As we move to verse 18, And as we bend closer to our topic of membership, it says here, verse 18, that He is the head of the body, the church. This means that Jesus is the absolute sovereign authority over the church. As one puts it, in the ancient world, the head was conceived to be the governing member of the body, that which both controlled it and provided for its life and its sustenance. And so we are described as the church, as the body of Christ. You see the parallel of verse 17. The cohesiveness that Christ supplies to the universe is a cohesiveness which He is paralleled here in His supply to the church. Jesus holds the universe together and He holds the church together by His authority. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Let's stop for a moment now and just center on that thought as we consider this topic of church membership. First of all, I think this truth applies to terminology. Remember, we don't get the concept of membership from a health club, from Sam's Club. I'm a member of Sam's Club. Actually, I found out in the first service I'm not. Uh, Beth informed me of that. But we're not members of Sam's Club. I have no idea. But it's not that. It's not that kind of concept. 
We are members in the sense that we participate in the body of Christ. He is our head. We are in vital union with the absolute sovereign authority of the church. And it speaks, secondly, to that point, and that is authority. The members of a local church are those who willingly submit to the authority of Jesus over this body. As we identify as covenant members with one another, we are saying Jesus Christ is head. He has purchased this church. It's His. I say that. I believe that. I intend to live under that idea. It speaks thirdly to the issue of church discipline. Remember, this Christ, this sovereign reigning Christ, gives to His church the task of binding and loosing. We operate together as Christ's proxy, seeking to establish on earth who is a member of the body of Christ and who is not. Now, we don't stand as the portal there and we are the ones who determine who's saved and who's lost. But we are given by the sovereign and reigning Christ the responsibility to administer the gospel. To say to people outside of Christ, you are destined for destruction in eternity because you're not Reconciled to God. What authority do I have? I have the authority of the risen Christ to speak that message, that gospel truth, and to proclaim it to unbelievers. And then those who come into our assembly to seek to discern who is part of this body, who is part of Christ and who is not. Again, not that we can do so perfectly. As ambassadors, we may make mistakes along the way either way. But that's the task to which Christ has called us. Fourthly, the assembly. Why do you come to church? Why do you gather with the Lord's people on Sunday? Do we recognize that we come in part to say with our presence, Jesus is my head. I am part of the body of Christ and I'm gathering here to identify with others that the risen Christ has given salvation to and has brought into this body. I'm here to vote, in a sense. I'm here to identify more profoundly with this work that Jesus is doing and to say I'm one with the body of Christ under the headship of Jesus. Getting back to the text, we learn in verse 18 that He is the beginning. That is, Jesus is the originating power of His new creation, the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first to defeat death, which is His title to preeminent Lordship. And in Him and through this resurrection, we will come into the presence of God. Then verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of God's attributes, all of God's power, all of God's nature reside fully in Christ. Notice chapter 2 and verse 9, which adds to this concept, 2.9, In Him... In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All the fullness of God resides in Christ, the Creator and Sustainer of the universe and the Head of His body, the church. Recently, two men talked to me about their vision of Jesus and who He is. They were asking that question, who is Jesus? And they claimed to be Christians, and they claimed that they believed Jesus died a sacrificial death for sinners. 
But they also believed Jesus was only a man. That he was not really God. I said, you know, gentlemen, I've got two objections with that idea that are very concerning to me. The first is that this view that Jesus is not God brings into serious question the integrity of the New Testament authors in the Bible that you hold and read. A man pre-exists creation, creates the universe, holds it together, rises from the dead, and in him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And this is just a man. If it was important that we preserve the truth that Jesus Christ was not God, Paul is really blowing it here. I mean, somebody throws the pitch and says, is Jesus God? Knock this pitch out of the park. And Paul knocks it right out of the universe. And I said to them, I've got a second objection. And I said, now be careful here, because I'm not just saying hedge your bets. But I, I, th- I, if we get to the right point here, my other concern with what you're saying is if I am wrong about Jesus, I'm going to stand before him and, and say, well, I overshot it a bit. My expectations were too high. I, I thought more of you than I should have. But if he is God and you stand before him, You're going to stand before the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, and you're going to need to explain why you spent your whole lives telling people he was not God. Who is Jesus to you? Do you have the real Christ? The truth is, in the passage read earlier this morning, that of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. That's the reality. That's the fact. The issue is, are we reconciled to that reality? Who is Jesus to you? Philippians chapter 2, and I speak to each of you. If you've not come to discern who Jesus truly is and what He has done, every one of us will bow the knee before Christ. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord of all, not as a mere man, though as fully man but as one who is God, very God. Are you ready to bow the knee before Him? Do you know that you've been reconciled to who He is and that you can stand in His presence forgiven? That provision has been made by what Christ has provided in His death and resurrection. And we'll learn more of that as we move through the text. But going to verse 20, that through Him... And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. I think the idea here is that through Christ's death, God secured the eventual reconciliation of all things to Himself. When Jesus defeated death, He secured the eventual restoration of the universe to a pre-fall condition. I don't think the idea here is that all people will be saved. There's too much Scripture that says otherwise. But all things will be restored to their rightful order in its time. And it's the work of the cross that is the ultimate point at which all of that is made possible. 
So you know what happens among us when someone comes to Christ as Savior? You know what happens when we see an unbeliever trust Jesus as Savior? What we're seeing there is the breaking in of that final day when God will redeem all things. He's beginning to do this. The risen Christ is seeking out people, bringing them to saving faith. He is rescuing His church. And it's all just in preparation for the final and ultimate restoration of all things. All of this has been secured by the death and the resurrection of Christ as He's defeated death and the curse and will bring it all together in time. Verse 21 continues, as it gets now pointed to the Colossian believers and indeed to us, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. A whole series of sermons could be spent right there, but let's try to grasp it quickly. Like all of fallen creation, we are by nature estranged from God and hostile in mind to His purposes and to His glory. That hostility of mind toward God, how does it work itself out? What does the text say? Hostile in mind, working itself out in evil deeds. Pride and selfishness and lust and lying and stealing and gossip and greed. And just everything that is not God in our lives. We were alienated and hostile in mind doing these evil deeds. And thus, before a holy God, we were ugly. We were unseeable. Our sin separates us from His holiness and His greatness. But He has reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death. The context here is certainly false teachers who are denying the physical nature of Christ or the reality of His death or something along these lines as these ideas will become more crystallized as history develops. But Christ's physical death, we are to understand, is utterly essential It's necessary, the necessary means to a necessary rescue of sinners from God's wrath and to their final resurrection from the dead. There's no other way we can be rescued from the physical nature of our sin and its consequences but through the physical death of Jesus Christ and His physical resurrection. What is the intended purpose for which Jesus reconciles sinners to God? Let's... Tie in here very carefully. You'll notice the phrase at the middle of verse 22. Jesus' death providing our salvation, our reconciliation to God by His physical death. Now notice here, why does He die? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Now this is not going to happen all at once. It's not going to happen completely in this lifetime. But... Becoming holy, blameless, and above reproach is the transformational agenda of Christ's death and resurrection. It's His agenda for His people. He has come in part with this purpose to make you holy and blameless and above reproach. This is the purpose of His death, the end to which He has died. This is organic to His saving grace. And it will begin a life 
that will find consummation in eternity, a life that is holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, there is a qualifier, and that's verse 23. Watch this. If, you notice the word if. It's easy to just sort of pretend it's not there, but it's there. It says, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, why is that if there? The promise of verse 22, Jesus died to reconcile you to God and to make you holy, blameless, and above reproach. That promise that this is what God is doing excludes anyone who abandons the faith. The evidence of genuine faith is that I continue to cling to the hope of the gospel. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. That is not to say that my job is to cling on to God, and if I would happen to lose Him, I've lost my salvation. God holds us. But it is to say this, that those whom Christ redeems and saves do hold on. He saved them for that reason. And so the evidence of genuine faith is that I continue to cling to the hope of the Gospel. I live a life of repentance. Paul does not intend to raise doubts here in the minds of the believers, but to state the unimpeachable and organic results of our salvation. Those that are are genuinely saved continue to hold to the Gospel. They continue to seek in Christ's death and resurrection their hope for eternity. So someone who abandons that faith and turns from the gospel of Christ is someone who evidences that they never were genuine believers. Again, we have a very hard time determining this. There are times when people walk away from God and come back in repentance, and sometimes after years. We aren't able to always discern where a person is in this process, but we must not delete and cut out of our text this warning, if indeed you continue in the faith. Those who are genuinely saved continue to cling to the gospel of Christ. Those who abandon that gospel, no matter how earnest they may appear at one place in time, if they've abandoned the gospel and they cease to live a life of repentance that connects to it, they will enter eternity without the gospel not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. No one losing their salvation, but revealing that they never had it. This message, Paul says, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Perhaps in some sense it's proclaimed just cosmically in the death and resurrection of Christ, but probably here to be understood as a hyperbole all over the place. This message has been proclaimed, and Paul indeed had a hand in that, of it being proclaimed all over the place in the Roman Empire. This is the message that we are proclaiming. This is the saving, reconciling mercy of Christ who is the sovereign head of creation in His church. I've sought to bring our attention to this passage in particular because I think it's so fitting to our understanding of church membership. We cannot connect all of the dots and trace out all of the roots. But who Jesus is and how He relates to our church is crucial to our life together. It is absolutely essential. 
So just for a few moments, let's plow several rows here. The first, baptism. How does this vision of Christ, who he is and how he relates to us, how does this apply to baptism? Well, it locks right into verses 21 and 22. The means by which we identify those who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, who are now reconciled to God, is through the waters of baptism. They stand in the waters of baptism before the assembly and say, I have died with Christ and I have risen with Christ. This work that the risen Christ is doing in this world has taken place in my life. And I am identifying now with His body as a member of His church of which He is the head. We come in this initiation in baptism to make this statement symbolizing that the gravitational center now of our universe has shifted from self and Satan to Christ and His glory. That's baptism. Not a dead ritual. It's a vibrant statement of how one relates to the risen Christ. If you've not made that statement as a believer who can testify to your salvation... I just call you to enter into what God has planned. What He wants. What He's called us to do. Secondly, regenerate church membership. There are people who come to our church that desire to identify with us who have already been baptized. Should we have them re-baptized just to identify with our church? There seems to be no support of that idea in the New Testament text. And so we have baptized people coming to our assembly from time to time who desire to identify. We're not going to rebaptize them, but how, how do we deal with them as we talk about this matter of maintaining a regenerate church? Again, it locks right back into verses 21 and 22, doesn't it? Conversion is the active work of the risen Christ who continues to pour out His Spirit and to save sinners. We need then as our task to identify people as genuine members of the body of Jesus. The body that He is saving. By maintaining a regenerate church membership, the church actively displays holding up for the world to see the transforming power of salvation in Christ worked out in the lives of the redeemed. We won't always get this right. As Christ's proxy, sometimes we will definitely fail. But we want to work hard at coming to understand that a person has indeed been redeemed and reconciled to God and to identify that person as one who appropriately joins the body of Christ and the membership of this church. Now, when you see someone give their testimony of faith, obviously we don't have the time to ask long questions and work through it over a long period of time. But every person I want you to know that stands before this church to testify of their salvation has been through much effort coming to that place to articulate their faith, to be sure that this person knows Christ as Savior. And we are honestly in absolutely no hurry. If there are questions that arise about a person's salvation, a sense that maybe there's some things they don't grasp yet, we take the time to meet with, to work through, and to develop, to be sure that a person knows Christ as Savior as far as we can determine. Why are we doing that? In a simple phrase, Jesus 
is the head of his church. It's not about social connection. It's not about making sure we don't offend somebody, perhaps, though we seek to be very gentle. It's about us identifying who Jesus identifies as part of his church. We serve as his ambassadors for his glory. Thirdly is church discipline. Now this locks into verses 22 and verse 23. People who are not showing evidences of conversion are set outside of the circle of the church in the realm of the lost. Now we can't know perfectly that someone is lost and when we separate someone from the assembly, we're not necessarily saying that and judging that as a church. All we're saying is you're living like the lost. You're not living in repentance because you refuse to turn and to bring your life in line with what Christ has said and what the Word of God indicates. In fact, as we saw indicated last week, we need to continue to relate to that person on some level as a brother unless there is just complete renunciation of the faith. Certainly, church membership is never to be an attempt to offend people or to be callous to the pain that such actions produce. We realize discipline is painful. That's kind of what the point of discipline is. To bring some pain, to bring in an appropriate sense some shame, to bring a person to be ready to stand before the head of the church in eternity. See, this isn't a game for us as a church. We really believe this reality that we will stand before Christ. You will stand before Christ. And so as a body of believers, we want to surround one another and help one another be prepared for that meeting. And we do this because Jesus is the head of His church. So it is our job to reflect then what He is doing and to reflect what He has not done in the way that we relate to one another. We are to bind and to loose. That is, our call is to serve the purposes of Christ, bringing the Gospel to bear upon all who would identify with us and upon those unbelievers that we meet who are not rightly related to Christ. I thank God for the wonder, for the beauty of His church and the purposes that He has in it. I need this church. I need you And I recognize that in humility. Christ has made that so clear that we need one another. I need you because I am a sinner. I need a place, I need a body of believers with which to identify where I can confess my sins. Where I can walk among you as the sinner that I am in the sight of Christ. See, what happens in a church where we don't really come to terms with the Lordship of Christ, then we're dealing with one another in the sense of the Lordship of self. I've picked this church for myself. And this church needs to add up to certain things in my vision, and that's how I look at it. And really, my life is my business, and everybody else should just stay out of it. I become the Lord of my life. And I relate to the church on the basis of what I see in it, what I want to get out of it. No, we're to relate to the church as the sinners Christ see us to be. That's the reality. And the beauty of that is I can leave my mask in a grave somewhere and never go back and get it again. I can be the person that I really am before Christ, before the church. 
I don't have to hide my sin and my failure. I confess it. I walk with others who are walking in a life of repentance. We all need that. And you know what the amazing result is? As I confess my sins, which I do routinely, even within the context of this body, on a regular basis, you know what happens there is really not a sense of shame and embarrassment. What begins to slowly take place is new sprouts of holiness and blamelessness and of being above reproach. It's not surprising, is it? It's exactly why Jesus reconciles us to God, to produce such holiness within us, so that as we relate to one another as sinners, He deepens us through humility in righteousness. All of this works when we see Christ as the head of His church. Who is Jesus How does He relate to us? He is the Sovereign Lord and Head of Eden Baptist Church. Our practice of church membership will rise no higher than our vision of who He is and how He relates to us. And who He is and how He relates to us has everything to do with who we are and how we relate to one another. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we rejoice in the new creation. We praise You for the body, the church, for our head, Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the wonder of Your salvation. And I pray that as we respond as a church to this glorious vision and this high Christology of a Christ who reigns supreme over all things for all eternity, who will ultimately hand over the kingdom to You, as all will be settled and reconciled and finished up to the glory of Your name. Father, to this end, we give You thanks. With our focus on this end, we praise You in hope. Praying for anyone who is separated from Christ today, please do not allow them to go into a Christless eternity. An eternity where they will bow before Jesus who they did not serve as Savior and Lord. I pray that You would bring them to saving faith today and I pray for those of us who know You that we would rejoice in who Christ is and how He relates to us as the head of this church. I pray, God, that we would never confuse that reality and that we will always remember that Eden Baptist Church has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. As we have sung every inch of this universe is owned by Christ. And that is and means this church. We thank You for that and pray that You will help us to align ourselves with that reality for the deepening and the strengthening and the sanctification of this body and for the evangelism of a lost world alienated from You who knows nothing of the fellowship of the body of Christ. Open doors of opportunity for us to proclaim that truth and to draw others in, to draw sinners in, and to see them pursuing sanctification with us. To this end we pray through Christ. Amen.